we do have the possibility of doing a third series, but I'm hesitating to say that. We'll try and gauge what the demand is and whether people will be interested. But the third series does a whole lot of areas like, you know, once you become a Christian, what does it mean to be a disciple, to walk the Christian road? Uh, we look at the devil, we look at the Bible, we look at um, prayer, we look at the Holy Spirit. There's a whole ro uh, lot of issues that we look at, often the ones that were covered by Alpha, and uh, we, take, we do our own take on it. But for now, we are on to the final one, uh, which is called Following Jesus. So we come to the end of this series. What does it mean then uh, to be a disciple? Uh, in Mark 1 verses 16 to 20, we've got those familiar words that I suppose we all pretty well know from the beginning. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon uh, and his brother Andrew. I think that was, these were probably the first things that I ever learned at Sunday school. And uh, he called these men and said, I want to make you fishers of men and come follow me and so on and so on. So that, so we're going to look at what, what does that mean uh, to be a follower of Jesus? We know, we're familiar with the term disciple. That is one of the few Latin words that I ever learned. I remember I had a, I, I mean, I studied it for two years. I was not a very good student of Latin. But the first phrase I remember is discipuli pictorum spectate. That means pupils look at the picture. That's all I know. You can't go very far on that. The Latin word discipuli is the word for a disciple, and it just means pupils. Pupils look at the picture. So a disciple then is a pupil. It's somebody that follows, follows a, a master, a teacher, a rabbi, somebody that not only follows them, listens to them, but actually physically follows after them. So you can see that that was exactly what happened with Jesus, and when a person becomes a Christian, for those of you that missed last week, last week we talked about becoming a Christian. How do you become a Christian? That will come online in a bit. Um, what, what does it mean when you become a Christian? And there are lots of confusing messages, it seems to me. I mean, some of them make it look pretty good. You know, you can get uh, preachers that will say, you know, if you, if you become a follower of Jesus, you're, you know, you're... you're your life starts to work right, God is blessing you and healing comes and so on. And there's a few of them there. I thought we'd kind of just very briefly look at those to sort of light it up. It's certainly there through the Bible. That I mean, the gospel is good news. So it is definitely good news. And in John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. So, I mean, that sounds pretty good. I mean, that's what everybody's looking for. Everybody's looking for an abundant life, an exuberant life, a life with a plus, a life that is extra. And Jesus says, come follow me and you will have life to the full. Uh, in uh, in uh, number John 15 and verse 11, Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you that my joy might be in you and that your joy may be full. So again, it's kind of, it's heaped up and extra. It's not just average joy, it's effervescent bubbling joy. It's full joy uh, if you come follow me. And then in, in verse uh, chapter 14 and verse 27, I mean, this is all just in a few chapters of John's Gospel, verse 27 of chapter 14, Peace I live with you, my peace I give to you. Uh, I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Peace. I mean, how many people suffer with anxiety? How many mental health issues are there today? The people, if you could say, I've, I've got peace, that's the deal. How many would say, yes, that's what I want. So, I mean, if you summarize it, you have to say that that Jesus offers, and it's specific there, life and joy and peace, everything that deep down a human spirit is looking for and longing for. Alongside that, there is another side, a darker side, if you can see what I mean. I'm going to try and reconcile those and bring them all together, but it does need to be mentioned. In Luke uh, chapter 12 and verse 33, Jesus said, Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So it sounds, sounds a bit more tough. 
you know, what that means. Sell your possessions and, uh, and give it to the poor and provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. In uh, chapter 14, verse 28 to 33, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost? to see if he has enough money to complete it. For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build but was not able to finish. Well, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? And if he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Whoa! I mean, you get the hint of what's coming here when he said, you, really, you need to count the cost of this. That does not sound like a walk in the park. So in one sense, there's peace and joy and, and, and life and fullness. But on the other hand, there seems to carry, and this is all from Jesus, it's from the Lord. There seems to be a cost in it. You've got, to, you've got to take stock. You need to weigh it up carefully before you do it, which is why I think it's important to have a weigh up course so that we can weigh it up. We need to know the score. Uh, so there is, in, in one, I call it good news and bad news. Um, that may not be the best way of putting it, but hopefully um, it gives you the picture of it. So to, to follow Jesus involves giving and cost and sacrifice. So it's life, but it's also costly. So under those two headings, that we're going to look at that tonight. Uh, sometimes, you know, sometimes a sermon carries one thing and, and then people get disappointed or disillusioned and think, it's not working out for me like that. Um, and then sometimes it's the other way and it, you, you're doom and gloom and you think, you know, this is really a bit of a grind. This is really hard going. So I'm going to try and hold the two together tonight in tension. Okay, first of all then, good news. Uh, I, I, you will notice that all these points begin with F. I mean, it's interesting that the essence of human problems, uh, half of them were F. I don't know why that is, you know, like futility and fear and failure. These are the things that gnaw away at human beings. But it's very interesting. I found that when I come to the blessings of being a Christian, they all begin with F. Or at least I saw that some did, and I thought, I'm sure we can work that into a pattern. Because then, you know, it's easier to remember. So for any of you that have an interest and you say, somebody said to me, what does it mean to be a Christian? Here you go, five. F's. Number one, the friendship of Jesus is the key, is the heart of the whole thing. People say, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Bang on. Okay, secondly, freedom from sin is what Jesus offers us. Uh, thirdly, a fruitful personality, a life that actually means something. You can leave a legacy behind as a believer. Fourthly, a focus to your life, a sense of direction. And fifthly, a future beyond death. Okay, so if you want to memorize those, or if your memory's not good, write them down. I'll test you at the end. Uh, those five then, it seems to me, that, that is what it means to become a Christian. And when I actually go to work through these, some years ago now, I, I realize that they are the essence of everybody's need. It's not just for people that are, that are bought into it and become Christians. Everybody is actually looking for this stuff everywhere. Okay, so first of all then, the friendship of Jesus. What can we say about that? Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel in Matthew 28, 20, and I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. I can remember clearly the day that I came home from being baptized when I was 13 and a half years old, and I was overwhelmed with the sense that I would never be alone again that something had happened deep in the core of my being that was changed forever. And you look out on the world today, and I could weep for the multitudes of men and women that carry inside them a deep inner loneliness, that no amount of relationships and experimentation and this and that and experiences, none of it can fill. I mean, half the mental health problems, if you notice, I mean, I think they said that within the last few years, mental health problems among young people have gone up 70%. I mean, they are rocketing up. They're having to put whole departments in school to looking after young people whose lives are falling to pieces. And I would sense that part of the key to that is that there is a deep inner loneliness. Now, having said that, 
it has to be said that all of us carry within us a certain solitariness. Again, I was familiar with that as I grew, as you get older and you grow out of your parents, you suddenly sort of think, I'm on my own in this. You know, you kind of, and, and, it, and it made me realize as I'm reflecting on it that you, that, I mean, there is a sense in which, for, even if you've got the best friends in the world, they can only get so, they can only get so close. You know, you, you come into the world on your own and you leave it on your own and in between you gather some friends, you know, to, to sort of be with you and to walk with you, but there's, there's a point beyond which they, they are not able to go, particularly when you're in, in pain, in difficulty, in stress. Suddenly you feel very isolated. When people let you down, when people don't come up to the mark, when they're, uh, you know, overwhelmed with their own feelings of loneliness and they're not able uh, to do that. I mean, many people get married and feel that their marriage partner is going to fulfill all their ultimate needs. Many difficulties happen in marriage when that doesn't happen. And uh, I mean, Debbie and I have been married for 50 years and she has been my constant companion. She cooks for me, looks after me. It's a bit old-fashioned, I understand that. But she cooks for me, looks after me, cares for the home for me. We walk together, we talk together, we do things together. You know, if I look back on my life, I cannot imagine how I would have managed without her. My constant companion, my best friend. Because moving on from place to place, you know, you don't find it easy to accumulate lifelong friends. She's my lifelong friend. But I have to say that there are times when she can't, you know, when I went into hospital for a heart bypass, she couldn't go in the, she couldn't go in the operating theatre with me. You know what I mean? She can, stand there. she can stand there and be there, but there's a point beyond which she can't go. And all of us face this. I, I've sometimes been around the, the, the bed of somebody dying. And you realize then how, how ultimately isolated we are. You know, people can say nice things and wish us well, but you're there. You know, you're on your own. And that is an ultimate reality. And I mean, sometimes that, that seeps in upon us and, you know, and we can become overwhelmed with it. But my testimony has been that in spite of all these things, uh, what Jesus offers to us is the ultimate answer. Uh, because what he offers is to come and live inside of us. He says, I'm in you and you're in me. Well, that's pretty good, isn't it? You know, to have a, a, a friend that you can talk to at any time, in any way, in any situation, who goes through, with you through the, all your averties and difficulties. And I've found that that actually, that is the foundational relationship. That actually enhances all other relationships. That enables me to make other relationships without having to be dependent upon them in order to gain my sense of security and my worth and my person, because I'm already getting that from him. It gives me the, the, the potential to do deeds and to stand up. You know, there have been times in my life, I mean, I'm speaking personally here, when I thought to myself, is that really me? I remember standing up in front of about a thousand people and I'm, I'm having to lead the congregation and I'm thinking, what do I say next, Lord? And I think, goodness me, when I started, when I first stood up pr to preach and my hands were shaking so much that the pulpit started wobbling with me in sympathy. I mean, how's that happened? How have I, how's that happened? What has been built inside me? And I have to say, it is, the, it is the overwhelming friendship of Jesus through the years ministered by the Holy Spirit. So I take a bit of time on that one, but that to me is the key. If you forget everything else, try and remember that. And, and nurture that friendship. Take time to be still, to be alone, to converse. And that's why we'd, later on we might do prayer and think about that a little bit more. Okay, uh, the key then to inner security. Second one, freedom from sin. Uh, in John 8, 31 to 36, I've started putting some of my passages on the, on the screen to help me uh, not have to keep searching through the scriptures looking for them. But uh, in John 8, 31, it says, If you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered very indignant, we are Abraham's descendants and we have never been slaves to anyone. And Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's all of us. We're all slaves. A slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son, a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So he has the authority to set us free in a, in a core part of our being. 
So again, taking that passage, it's, the implication is that the normal condition of a human being is to be a slave. And we've actually done that. We did that earlier on when we were talking about what's gone wrong with the world. That we are pawns. We're pushed around. People think they're being free. Often when they think they're being freest, they're actually most uh, being a slave. That's the normal condition of human beings because we're all sinners. And, and that explains, I think, the avalanche of guilt, inadequacy, depression, and everything else that is falling upon a society that has increasingly not got the inner resources that Jesus, that Jesus brings. It's not there. It doesn't re, it's, it's not reinforced. It's not in the culture. You can't find it anywhere. So multitudes of people, I think, are ultimately coming uh, under that and, and increasingly living their life way beyond their potential. Um, way beyond what they ought to be uh, because of that deep inner uh, sense of guilt. And, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm a good person. How, how do I manage to live my life and hold my head up and so on and so on and so on? And Jesus frees us from that. Jesus sets us free in the inner person, first of all, from the penalty of it. We talked about that when we talked about the cross and the fact that the that on the cross, Jesus paid the price. So we're not accountable anymore. We're, well, we're accountable, but we're not held guilty anymore. We're set free from it. If we confess our sins, he's faithful just to for, forgive us our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Start every day with a clean sheet. I can look myself straight in the face and say, you are a sinner, but that's okay. Well, it's not okay, but it's okay. See what I'm saying? It's, I'm, I'm a forgiven sinner. I'm a sinner with potential. I'm a sinner that's not going to stay a sinner because the, the penalty has been paid and the power has been broken. That's the second thing. Now, that seems to me to take longer. In fact, you could say that's a lifetime's operation, becoming holy, being set free from the selfishness that is so much a part of our nature that keeps on rising up and wanting to assert itself. So as I, as I, as I follow him, he sets me free inside, psychologically, mentally free to be a son or a daughter of God and to walk with my head high with joy in the world. Well, that's not bad, is it? I mean, that's what everybody is looking for. And then there's a fruitful personality. Okay, John 15 and verse uh, 16. Jesus said, you did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So God's plan for us is that we would be fruitful and that as disciples, our lives would be fruitful. Uh, not only in, our, in, in the impact of our lives, though certainly in that, uh, my, my dream for all of us is that we would actually walk through the earth spreading blessing around us wherever we go in all our close relationships, but even in casual relationships, even when we meet people on the street, wouldn't it be great uh, if they were affected by the fact that they met us and bumped into us? Wouldn't it be great if one day we see a great stack, of a great harvest of men and women who are, who are saved and heaven, redeemed and everything else because they bumped into us and met us along the way? You think, goodness me, did I do that? Well, no, God did it through me. But that, that seems to me, that's what the... I've chosen you so you go and bear fruit. So that your life without an impact. And, and also in our character, because you remember the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and patience. I mean, it's no, no point, you know, having massive achievements in, in an open way if in my character I'm still a self-centered, mean-spirited pygmy of a person. There's no, no good. I mean... God's purpose for me is that I will be transformed, that I will grow good and beautiful and that he would finish that job in eternity uh, and that, that that which I've done would actually last and that I would leave a legacy behind me. I mean, you often hear people talk about legacy. But, I mean, how much of a legacy does anybody leave? You know, the only, I mean, I came to the conclusion, the only thing that lasts are people because they're eternal. So in the end of the day, whatever your life has or hasn't achieved, it will only achieve anything insofar as it's impacted on other people. And on you, of course, because you're eternal. 
So the, the chief arena of fruit bearing is in the lives of men and women. Everything else is incidental. The money that we have, the possessions that we have, the dreams that we dream, things that we're going to do, all of that is comparatively insignificant. Okay, you need a bit of bread to keep yourself going each day. Uh, but, uh, but apart from that, the real key, the fruit that will last will be the fruit that takes place in other people. Okay, number four. You okay so far? Don't have to remember all this. If you can just remember the five pegs to hang things on, then you can add your own content to it. Uh, so number four, a focus to life. Now, I mean, a lot of people, if you say, well, what's the purpose of your life? They wouldn't really know. They wouldn't have any sense of purpose. But probably for many people, it would be something like those, th those titles up there. To, you know, I mean, some people would, would say... Uh, well, my purpose is to have fun, to enjoy life. I mean, that might be in the sense of parties and merrymaking, or it might be in the sense of going on, on Mediterranean cruises and, you know, endless holidays and so on. Lots of, lots of retired people, when they get to the point of being retired, determine that they'll just go on endless holidays. Um, and that, I suppose that, in a sense, that's their purpose. Their, their, their purpose is to have fun and enjoy themselves, to be happy, to make money, uh, to be secure, to build a home to have a family, whatever. I mean, we carry these kind of things, not necessarily specifically spoken, but unspoken in, our, in the core of our being. It's probably interesting for us to actually say to us, what are the kind of, what are the, what are the purposes that I'm going, what am I looking for? What am I hoping to achieve uh, with my life? Whatever they are, if that's it, they're not enough. I remember I read somewhere, somebody once said that life must have a greater purpose than the accumulation of grown-up toys or it's not life at all. And I thought, that's actually true. And of course, to some extent, our, our culture encourages to do that. The latest bit of technology, latest bit of whiz stuff or whatever, uh, or clothes or fashion, you know. You know, we're, we're a society that sort of deeply embeds itself in all kinds of things like this, but none of them are enough. They leave the human spirit unsatisfied. If we look in Matthew chapter 6 and verse uh, 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given you as well. He was talking about food and clothing and eat and drink and so on. God, it's not, these are not of no consequence whatever, but they need to take their place. The central, the big issue is the kingdom, is God's rule, is doing what pleases him. If you do that, all else falls into place. I mean, I don't, I'm digressing here a minute. We were talking about a, a film that um, Hacksaw Ridge, wasn't it? Um, just as we were talking about a guy that went into the army. Was it in the Second World War? Second World War, went into the army, was a conscientious objector and, uh, and, determined, and, and determined that he would, not, he would not even bear a rifle. He went through lots of problems and difficulties in that. But in the end, he won through, he got in, he went in the medical corps. And, uh, and then there in the medical corps, um, he made it his mission to, to bless and to help and to rescue as many men as he could. And I mean, I only briefly got it because we were only talking about it a couple of minutes. Well, we? I probably got to get Ian to sort of tell this bit, but I won't. Um, but, uh, but this guy, I mean, he ended up, he went out into no man's land so many times. He brought, and he would he'd say, Lord, just one more, just one more. Uh, and out he go, no rifle. He said, you're crazy. You're going to be shot in no time at all. And I, I thought, amazing. I mean, here is a man that is just le leaves it all behind him. He goes out there vulnerable, a bear, nothing really. And God is honored him and blesses him and uses him. So the kingdom, doing what God says, is the big issue. Uh, and that's what, that, that is what Jesus says here. And it's that that gives your life meaning. If, you, if you're just kind of, you know, climbing up a sort of a, a ladder of success or ambition or you want to get further on in your job or you want to earn more money or you want to get a better house or a bigger house or, you know, more furniture or that special thing that you've just seen advertised, if that's all you're going to do, it will leave you unsatisfied without a sense of overall meaning. If you put the kingdom, say, I will please God. That is my first thing I'm going to try to do. Okay, now you may say, well, I don't know what God wants me to do. That's another issue. We'll look at that in the second next series if we get that far. Uh, but uh, but if, you, if you once say, I will do what God wants me to do, I think he will sort that for you. 
even without me telling you about it. And you will find that gives your life meaning. It helps me to order my priorities, to work out what to do. I mean, I, I can't say that Debbie and I have always got every decision right. We've made some bad buys. We've got lured into materialism. We've done this, that, and the other. But again and again, we find we're drawn back to say, what does the king want us to do? You know, where we lived, we went where the king wanted us to live. When we came down here, we looked for the Lord to lead us and guide us to the place where we'd be. Now, I know loads of you would live under that domain as well. That seems to me is the only way to live a life that is meaningful and ordered. And it deepens my joy in everything. When, when, when I receive something uh, unexpected, or it's a blessing to me. Uh, because that's not what I'm living for. Okay, so it gives a focus to your life. In Philippians 3, 13 to 14, he says, One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Here is a man who, who persecuted the church and was flipped over and his whole dynamic changed dramatically. Number five, a future beyond death. I was looking on the internet for my heavenly home, but I, could, I typed it in, but I couldn't find it. But in the end, I found this cottage in a woodland somewhere, and I thought, well, that will do to, to, uh, uh, to convey the point. In John 14 uh, and, uh, and verses 1, uh, in John 14, 1, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. The old version had mansions. I quite like mansions. I'd rather have a mansion than an apartment. But there you go. I mean, really, I think the word means dwelling places. The original word that was used was, was dwelling places, places to live. And you can, you can reckon they are going to be good. They're going to, I, I, Jesus goes on, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Uh, so, I mean, the, the future for a believer, for a person that has committed their lives to Christ is we're going home. Uh, this world is not my home. That's why we never quite settle here. And I, 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 once, I once was at a funeral service and I shared the, the image of a station um, in London, a big um, uh, terminal station in London. And I was walking to catch a train one night and there was a, I saw a pile of cardboard boxes and underneath them there was a tramp. And, uh, and he was, I mean, he was bedding down for the night and trying to find a comfy corner. It's not very comfy in a station, is it? Generally speaking, nobody disturbed him, so that's why he went there. But it's a whopping great hole in the front where all the trains go in and out, a big winds blowing everything. And here is this guy trying to make himself a comfy corner in a windswept place, trying to find a home for himself. And I thought, that's what we're like. You know, that's what life is like. It's millions and millions of people are all trying to find a comfy place to rest and settle without realizing that actually you're only here because one day you're going to leave. You're, not go you're never going to bed down here and be comfortable here. This is not your home. Your home is in the future. So Jesus said, I've got to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus, you remember, answered, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's it. So that, that is the ticket home. So number five in our, in our list of things is, is a future beyond death. Death has lost its sting for us. It's not the end anymore. Oh, look, I put that up there too. I spent all that time looking for it. <laughs> Never mind. There you go. Um, and uh, there's a little thought. The hardest journey is bearable if you're going home. And for the person that becomes a disciple of Jesus, from, from that moment onwards, you're on your way home. No matter how bumpy it may get. And for some of us, towards the end, it often gets more bumpy. You, you need to keep your eyes fixed on your destination and understand that's, that's what it's about. You're on your way home. It also needs to be said that the unpleasant destination will take all the joy out of the journey. And how many people, I think, deep down, not at the top, but deep down think, what will become of me? You know, and how, when, when I have to say goodbye to all my loved ones, 
when I'm there on my deathbed, and I'm off, out of here, what, what will become of me? And no matter how much riches you've had and no matter how much uh, food and wine and riotous living and parties, whatever you've had, you will die. And then where will it come to? And no matter how young and vibrant you may be, you will get old and wrinkly if you live long enough, like me. <laughs> but if I'm going home, what a difference that makes. So future beyond death then, last one. Okay, uh, have you got that? So the friendship of Jesus, freedom from sin, fruitfulness of personality, focus to your life, and a future beyond death. Okay, and now the bad news, question mark. The other side of the coin, if I may. Um, I was looking up for the world, the flesh and the devil because I thought, well, that just about sums it up. And uh, I thought it was in the Bible, but it's not in the Bible. It's, I think it's in the prayer book. It's a familiar phrase, though. I've always thought of the world, the flesh and the devil. And that's a film that was made, apparently. I've never seen it, but I found it on good old Google. Um, the world of flesh and the devil. Uh, but Ephesians 2 and verses 1 to 3 has a verse that sums it up really as far as I can see. He, he's saying this is what you were. You were dead in trespasses and sins. In other words, your flesh um, uh, you, did you. Following the ways of this world, influenced by the world and then under the ruler of the kingdom of the air, under the devil. So those threes, that kind of triumvirate, uh, of forces. So a Christian um, has, has a life and joy, but we're in a war zone. I mean, that summarizes it. And that war is all around us and outside of us and in us. So there is a fight to be fought if we're going to, and that's, that's what I would call the, the downside. So I'm going to reverse the order a little bit, not the world, the flesh, or the devil. I'm going to say the devil, the world, and the flesh. Uh, take it that way around. Okay, so the devil, first of all, um, the devil has many ways of, of, of seeking to afflict anybody that wants to follow Jesus, and the more you want to follow Jesus, the more likely you are to be assailed. Um, and, uh, and if we look at Matthew 4 and 1 to 11, uh, we find the story of Jesus' own temptation. If, if Jesus could be tempt tempted, then you can reckon that we will also be tempted. He was led by the Spirit into the desert, be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So you have to say Jesus is deliberately weakening himself physically for this contest. Because of course he knew that on the cross he would be again weakened physically. And he intended that he would stand. So I, I, my feeling is this was preparation. And in fact Jesus actually talks about the crucifixion as being a baptism. I have a baptism to be baptized with, he says to his disciples. So in a sense, his first baptism and then his, uh, his temptation in the wilderness was, uh, was a preparation for what was to come. And the tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the first temptation was to actually to satisfy his physical appetite. I mean, he had... He had he had enhanced his physical need so that he would know that he could stand against that kind of temptation. Generally, we don't have to do that. You know, we are, we are a walkover, and this is still a major assault of the enemy on the life of any believer. You can anticipate, you can expect that's going to happen. Now, it may be through eating in that case. It may, you know, there are folk that have got problems eating too much. Uh, it may be through sex. I mean, that's a big one, particularly for blokes, but probably not only for blokes, by our physical appetites. It may be through the love of comfort. That gets more so as you get older. My chair gets more comfortable. I'm less keen to come out in the evening. I mean, bless you all for coming out tonight. Haven't you all done well? You know, that's an achievement on a December winter night to just get out. Uh, a certain, I mean, some of you are much younger, of course, but a certain stage of your life, that gets to be an effort. And I find, you know, sometimes in the morning, I, I kind of, I think to myself, oh, I could just stay here in bed. Anybody ever get that there? So, so comfort. So, you know, to actually please myself physically 
is is quite it's it's you know different things, different cases for different stages of your life. Um, but nonetheless, physical appetite then, number one. Uh, then secondly, the devil took him, verse 5, to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. He said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, I will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up on their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So, I mean, what I thought about that. What is the, the enemy? The enemy is tempting Jesus to doubt his sonship, to doubt his position, to doubt the Father's love. Throw yourself down. Let's see. Jesus answered, "Is do not put the Lord your God to the test. But you can see that the temptation was definitely to doubt his fundamental standing in God. That's another one uh, for the Christian. You're no good. You know, you... You call yourself a Christian. I mean, what, you, what have you done with your life? You, you are such a waste of space. So, I mean, most of us will be familiar with that from time to time in our lives. Number two. Number three, uh, the search for popularity and power. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The lure of the culture, of the world, of society. Again, it changes at different stages of our lives. If we're a young person, it may be parties and, you know, out late and nightclubs and whatever. That doesn't attack me at all. Not a problem for me. But to be popular, to have significance, to have influence, to not look small in front of people, that is. To actually speak humbly as a disciple of Jesus uh, can be, in, in certain circumstances, can be quite difficult to do. So temptation then, those three, it seems to me, cover most of the temptations. I mean, there, there are variations on that uh, that we're likely to face. So the devil, first of all, is a tempter. He is also a major confuser. In 2 Corinthians 4, 1 to 4, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. For the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. I mean, he is brilliant at confusion. Our society is massively confused. Unbelievers are particularly Vulnerable. It, it actually mentions there, uh, if I go back to that, it, it, our gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this world blinded the minds of unbelievers. So unbelievers are particularly vulnerable. But I, I wouldn't want to leave it there. I think it, they're not alone. There is enough confusion in the church by and large for me to reckon that believers also suffer with their eyes being blinded, with our priorities thrown out of gear, with all sorts of things that we don't see and don't spot, and we don't get it, we don't understand what it's all about. So the enemy is a big confuser. In John 8, 44, Jesus talks about the devil. He says there's no truth in him. He's a liar and the father of lies. You remember when he came to Eve in the beginning, he said, did God say, did God say that? Uh, implication, of course he didn't. And so still as a major deceiver, so confusion. Number three, uh, the devil, uh, major works. And again, there's more to come on this, should we get there, and that's destruction. I think that's some kind of psychic, uh, demonic stall somewhere. You can tell by the pentagram on the back of that guy's uh, shirt. In 1 Peter 5, verse 8 to 11, it says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And I thought we needed to just mention this aspect of it just to recognize that this is a very serious conflict. This is life and death. This is people's life and death. This is eternal life and eternal death that is at stake here. And the enemy is a destroyer. As Jesus said when he called the enemy a liar, he said the other thing about he's a murderer. He has no love for anybody. So he, he lures people with with the lure of bright lights and this and that and satisfaction and all the fulfillment you have, his only desire is actually to destroy and to spoil and to break. So when you become a Christian, you do have to take that on. Now, he doesn't leave unbelievers alone, as we've said, but, but the person that would seek to serve Jesus can expect special treatment. 
can expect that they will be targeted, can expect that things will go adversely against them. So you have to be willing to push through and to hold the line and to get there. He exploits the world against us, and of course he exploits our own human frailty. And that is the next two subjects that we're going to look at to finally finish uh, this evening. Uh, in 1 John 5.19 it says, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Yeah, do you believe that? You know, even the nice bits of the world. I mean, obviously God's people are out there. God has his representatives all over the world. But that's a phenomenally uh, comprehensive statement. The whole world is under the control of the evil one. So for, for a believer, that does make life tricky. There are decisions we have to make. I mean, what am I going to do? Am I going to do that or am I not going to do that? Should I, you know, is that a right place for me to go? Is that not a right place for me to go? Um, I, I put that picture up there because uh, many years ago, I used to commute up to London, and that's London Bridge, or near London Bridge. I think it's London Bridge. I typed in London Bridge anyway, and that came up. So I think that's London Bridge. And I, I'd been to London Bridge Station in the morning and I'd arrived and I'd got a, I'd poured out of the station with all the other commuters. And then I remembered that I needed to get a ticket for my trip home in the evening, which I hadn't already got. So I turned around, I went back uh, up the concourse and against the flow. And then I realised what it was like to walk against the tide. And it, it, it struck me then that that was actually, that's what it's like. And it, well, no, the people didn't mean me ill, they were just walking in another way. And as far as they were concerned, I was walking the wrong way. And people generally don't like that. You know what I mean? What are you doing going that way? You should be coming this way. Come with us. And so when a person becomes a believer, you find all kinds of pressures from the people around us. They know, don't go that way. You can find it in your own family and so on. In Matthew 10, verse 21 to 22, Jesus says, brother will betray brother to death. A father is child. Children will rebel against their parents. All men will hate you because of me. That's pretty. That's, do you want that? Well, no, none of us want that. Is, is that the cost of it? Yes. Although I have to say, no, you know, I can't say that I've been hated all my life by everybody. So it doesn't always, but, but that's, that's a general. And it does seem to me that the more we stick out, uh, the more difficult it is quite likely to become. The world, of course, can can include anybody, can include your own family. As it says there, brother will betray brother. I mean, you found again and again, I can remember one, uh, one uh, lady that came to the Lord in my first church. This has happened quite a number of times through the years, although not exactly this circumstance. But she came to the Lord in my church and wanted to be baptized. And I heard that her husband was really, really irate about that. And uh, I mean, eventually, uh, in the... He, he, became, he became a Christian himself and we baptised the two of them together. So that was really great. But I mean, he, when, he, when he did eventually come to me and say, I want to follow Jesus as well, tell me what I've got to do. Um, he, he said to me, he said, you know, when my wife first came home, I was so angry, I thought the church had got her. And, um, and I, I, I thought she wouldn't be my wife anymore and she wouldn't love me anymore and I wouldn't be first in her life anymore. And, uh, and he said, to be honest, I wanted to get a brick and throw it through the window of your church just because I felt, you know, and he's a real mild-natured guy, just to show. So, I mean, here was, here, was, here was opposition right in her family, and that does happen. You know, so we, we, need to, we need to love our families and care for them, but we do need to recognise that there are, some, there, are, there are all kinds of things, not only in our family and our associates, people at work. Um, I always used to reckon if people at work were having a joke at my expense, that was okay. I didn't mind that. Um, and uh, you, you could often kind of use that as a platform. But sometimes it can get harder than that. It can get tough. You can be regarded as a problem at work because you hold the belief that you hold. The media uh, is constantly on it, always looking for the latest scandal story of the church and Christians and so on. So you get to feel a bit lonely. You feel like... You're being subtly persecuted, even though you're not exactly being persecuted. And the authorities, of course, which are increasingly coming down on believers, uh, you know, and we've heard of uh, accounts and stories of that. So the world is, the, is increasingly, it's understandable now, the world is not, is not on the side of Jesus. When he first came, it crucified him, and nothing uh, fundamentally has changed. I say, at many levels, it may be just subtle pressure, 
Um, and you know, you can deal with that in love and so on and so on. Uh, it may be people misunderstand you and take all kinds of wrong inferences. It may be direct scorn. And of course, in many cultures of the world, it may be active persecution. I mean, Mario was telling me uh, earlier um, that in the Middle East now, the Christians are being wiped out and, and you know, completely by militant Islam. You never know that in our, in our culture. It hardly reported at all. I mean, in our culture, Islam is often the victim. But, uh, but in many parts of the world, it is doing the most terrible and horrendous things uh, to Christian men and women. So many levels at which it operates. We, we haven't seen anything yet. All the more reason that we need to stand tall. Our response in Matthew 6, 5, 44 to 45, love your enemies, pray for those that persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. That's it. So whatever happens, we're not meant to sort of hit it back, but to actually respond in love and grace. In 2 Peter, 1 Peter 3, 14 to 15, if you should suffer what is right, do not fear. Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. That's why we're doing our way up course, so that we can give an answer with gentleness and respect. Final point, the flesh. Um, in Romans 7, 18 to 19, Paul says this, I have a desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out, for what I do is not the good that I, I want to do. No, the evil that I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, people have said that must have been before he was a Christian. He doesn't actually say that. Um, certainly what he experienced, I think many Christians would experience. We can't blame it all on the devil and the world. I've got my own enemy within, you know what I mean? Even though I'm born again, I'm being redeemed, I'm being changed on the inside, there is still that within me which rises up that is selfish and, uh, and sometimes hostile and so on. And, and I have the desire to do what's good, but often find that I'm in conflict inside. Uh, so here is this guy, I've got on the one hand, I've got a, a problem with being self-centered. Isaiah 53, 6 says, um, everyone has turned, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way. And that's what I want to do. I want to do my thing. I want to live my life and so on and so on. But Jesus, in Mark 8 and verse 34, calls me to deny myself, take up my cross and follow him. So that is probably the crux of the cost of being a disciple. On the one hand, I want to do what I want to do. On the other hand, he says to me, I want you to follow me and take up your cross. And whatever taking up a cross might mean for us, it doesn't sound easy or pleasant. It must mean some kind of sacrifice. That leaves us with inner conflict. And so Christians, although we live in peace, although we've got life, although we've got joy, we may also know levels of inner conflict and turmoil as we wrestle with the, with the attacks and the assaults and the inner stuff that is within us. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. What a wretched man I am. And then he goes on, but thanks be to God, who's given us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So we've come through that. But it is a reality, and it would be wrong not to point that up. Okay, so there is a paradox at the heart of being a disciple. Uh, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat, a grain of wheat, falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. In other words, the way to fruitfulness and life and power and all these things is actually to lay your life down. And he goes on, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life or loves it less in this world will keep it for eternal life. Like the guy that went running out on the thing, saving men and saying, God, give me one more man. Give me one more man that he can save and bring physically home. Uh, so it is for all of us. The man that is willing to give his life away, God gives it back. Jesus therefore promises life, but invites me to die. And therein is the paradox. Now you might say, oh, that's a bit confusing. That really makes my head hurt. Um, but I've, I've, I've realized that that is actually a paradox that runs all through life. And everybody is, is living that all the time. In Mark 8, 35 to 37, Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. 
Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And that's the, that's the conundrum. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, let me run that past you again. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. To get your life, you've got to give your life away. If you try and cling to it, it, it doesn't work. It, whoever wants to save his life, whoever says, I'm going to live for myself, I'm going to please myself, I'm going to do what I want to do, I'm going to look after number one. And I mean, lots of people sort of say that, modified. You know, I may care for my family and people immediately around you, me, but basically, number one, that is my priority goal. She says, if you live like that, you actually you will lose it. It will slip through your fingers. Instead of finding life, you will lose life. I mean, I, that photograph there was taken on one of the richest hotels in the world, looking out over Paris. I thought I'd put that there uh, to, to exhibit the high life. Uh, that you could, you could live with all kinds of high life, and it would leave you empty and meaningless. In fact, some years ago, I, I read a book, um, a, an article on Hollywood and it, probably out of date now, but I haven't got anything more recent. But they, at the time, they were saying that Hollywood was the richest square mile in the world. It's probably still not far off it. You know, they've got more uh, luxury houses, more swimming pools in their houses, more of the finer things of life. I mean, they're generally speaking, the beautiful people, they've got more attractiveness, they've got more money, they've got more of everything. They've got all the things that all the rest of the world would want, or apparently all the rest of the world would want. Hollywood then, the kind of, it's, it living, it's living the dream. But the article then went on to say, but they've also got more private detective agencies. They had about 192 private detective agencies in one square mile. They've got more psychiatrists, more people in therapy, more stress, more divorces, more broken families. If ever you needed an indication that this paradox runs all through life, if you, if you want life, give your life away. If you give your life to Jesus, he'll pour life in upon you. If you cling on to life for yourself, ultimately it slips through your fingers. Abundant life, it certainly is abundant life. I wouldn't swap it for the world. I cannot imagine what would have happened to me if I had not put my hands in his when I was 13 and a half years old. With a few hiccups along the way, we've walked together for a long time now. The friendship of Jesus, freedom from sin, fruitful personality, focus of life, future beyond death. I thought I'd put this up slowly. Uh, Jim Elliott said he was a missionary to South America, to the Orca Indians. Some of you may... <clears throat> may know it. I, I know Kip and Doreen will certainly know this saying, a man is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. I mean, he was martyred there in South America. His wife wrote the book, I think through Gates of Splendor, telling of his story. They carried on there and those men that had killed him, that tribe of uh, headhunters that had killed him, got saved. And there was a great harvest there among the Orca Indians through the death of this one man and his willingness to live life to the full. That, it seems to me, is the challenge that faces everyone. That is the, the opportunity and the glorious possibility for the disciple of Jesus. And each of us gets to write our own drama and our own script to determine how far we will go, how we will work it out. I'm still working it out now. I do not feel that I have anywhere near got to where I ought to be in terms of this, but I know, I know the score. I know the deal. You, life is yours if you're willing to let it go and die. Amen. Let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for the, the, the upward call of God in Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit is constantly seeking to draw us onwards and outwards to make us into men and women that are followers of, of Jesus. And I pray for anybody here, Lord, on this course that's not quite certain about that, still try to work that through, that you would walk with them and help them, that your spirit would come close to them. And, uh, and that through, this, uh, uh, through these times, Lord, we would see men and women coming into the kingdom and being born again and following Christ afresh. So, Father, would you, would you hear our prayer? We offer this prayer in the name of Jesus for his sake. Amen. Okay, well, we've got a few nice questions here, so that's great. I hope I can give you some nice answers to them.
Question number one, if we, if we have the Spirit of the Lord inside us, do we have the devil living within us? Does it ever go if we have? I suppose that means if the devil gets inside, does the Holy Spirit leave us if the devil gets inside? Is that, that what that question means? Got it, got it. Okay, yeah. Uh, I would say, generally speaking, no. I mean, we will look at this in terms, you know, uh, there are various levels at which the enemy can oppress people. And the more of a platform that the enemy has been given, the more he will take authority and seek to um, occupy territory. I, I, I think it's more, I found it more helpful to think of our lives like a whole house full of rooms. And uh, so it often takes us a long time to turn over the whole house to the Lord. So, you know, I mean, obviously when the Holy Spirit fills us, the Holy Spirit moves in and takes the whole house. But then we tend to take bit rooms back. And, of course, in those rooms that we take back, the enemy can then uh, build pressure and seek to make a platform and so on. So, you know, if you've got a particular area of your life that is not under Jesus' authority, uh, then that is obviously a source of conflict and so on. But again, we'll look at that in more detail, God willing, uh, when we get to do another series, assuming that we do. I'm sorry to be vague about that. We've got possibilities, but we're trying to monitor and do feedback and it represents a fairly hefty commitment, not just for me, but for all the guys that are doing it. So we can't make a total promise, but who knows? Uh, good. Okay. If you want something badly, is it good to pursue it or give it up to God in order to obtain it? Um, I, I think probably the idea that you give it up to God in order that you get it in the end is probably not a very good strategy because God knows our hearts and knows what we're about. <laughs> and, uh, that comes under the title manipulation. <clears throat> if you want something badly, I would say just let it go. You know, I mean, I, you can say, Lord, I, well, I'd love that. But, uh, but, I mean, it depends a bit what it is. You know, if you're wanting to see all your neighbours turn to Jesus and, you know, uh, great, go for that. If it's, if it's totally in line with the kingdom, then I think you can be pretty clear you can do it. But if it's something a bit more borderline, uh, then you probably, the best thing to do is to let it go. I mean, um, amazingly, you often do find that God fulfills the desires of your heart, even though you didn't even know they were your desires. So, you know what I mean? So you might not get exactly the thing you always wanted. You might get something better. But, uh, but that's for the Lord to decide and not you. I think, you know, our, our, our willingness to let go has to be as complete as we can make it. It certainly can't be with the, uh, the, uh, the idea that we'll get something better back in the end. Okay, you say we have fellowship with Jesus and walk with him. Why then do we need other Christians to keep us walking with Jesus? Well, I mean, if you're in the middle of the, of the jungle and you've got no other Christians, then Jesus will be totally sufficient for you. Um, but certainly the Bible, seem, from the beginning, seems to indicate that God created us for fellowship and intended that we would live in harmony, that we wouldn't be dogged individualists. So there, again, there's a bit of a paradox here. You know, if, if it comes to it, we, God wants us to be able to completely stand like warriors firm and not bend, as if we were the only ones standing. But, uh, but he also wants us to learn to depend on others. So, there's, you know, there's, it almost sounds like double dutch, doesn't it? He wants us to depend on others so that we lean on one another, so that we develop fellowship with one another, because God is love. And he doesn't want in heaven a whole heaven full of rugged individualists uh, who, uh, who certainly say, I did it my way. That okay? So we have uh, somebody used the picture of the coals in the fire a long time ago, of course, and you know, as coals need one another in the fire to keep themselves burning and warm, so we do really. But if if for a time you're set aside from fellowship, if you're sort of set aside with a you know an illness or you're not able to get out, I'm sure that we could trust that the Lord by the Holy Spirit would come and minister to us and bring us comfort. When are you doing series three? <laughs> well, that's the question I've been dodging most of the evening, I suppose, truth to say. Um, a, a lot depends if you want us to do series three. I think that's it. Um, would that be fair? 
I mean, you, you in a way, you're our test group. I mean, I think in general terms, we probably aim for a slightly more conducive uh, weather environment than December and November. So we're thinking probably into spring. Um, and, uh, and, and fit it in, really, among all the other demands and things that we have. But that, of that ilk, I would think we're probably thinking. And there are nine in the next series, so it's a slightly longer one. That is it, then. That's, that is the end of the way up course. Yes, yeah, the course I wrote it 20 years ago. Though, I mean, what you're getting now is, is no, nothing like what I did 20 years ago, I would say. I mean, it's a, as far as I know, it, the, the structure is similar, but there's a lot of new stuff and material in it. I do, yes. I mean, it has, it's certainly been a, uh, quite a busy year putting it together. Yeah, I, I take several days a week out preparing it and getting it ready. So that will be good. So we will, but I'm... You know, I don't know how many years I've got left when I can actually remember anything. You know, it's starting to go. You probably notice as I'm speaking along, I suddenly think, what was I going to say next? Um, so, you know, I'm a, a, few, a, few more, a few more months and they could end up being three hours long because I'm still trying to find how to finish it. <laughs> so I wouldn't want you to have to suffer that. <laughs> well, let's just, let's just pray. Father, I want to thank you for this group of people and uh, most have been here um, pretty much on and off through the course. I thank you for them. Uh, thank you for their keenness and willingness to come and share and grow and learn. I thank you that we're all disciples. We're all on a journey. We're all learning. And I pray that you would continue to teach us, Lord, and instruct us in the way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Till we meet again. Amen.